0: we are very thankful for our church family all of their just goodness to us uh, as a family that've given and done through the years we love our church we love our church family we are very thankful to get to be here when i was a kid there was a, a commercial and it was probably one of the most popular commercials of its time and We'll age some people here. So I'm going to ask who recognizes this phrase and could say where it came from. Where's the beef? (laughs) Ah, I'm not the only old person in the room. That's good. Now, for those of you that aren't laughing, it's obviously you weren't even born during that time. Uh, But where's the beef was a Wendy's commercial. And it was a way for them to not only advertise their hamburgers, but kind of a way for them to talk smack about the other burgers. And I think there was kind of two aspects of it on one hand. It was where's the beef because the little old lady that was saying it was looking at a tiny little burger on there instead of the great big patty that Wendy's was boasting on their burger. But also it was kind of a shot at the fact that Wendy's has all beef patties and nothing else mixed in with it. And that was the thing. That was the idea is that where if this is supposed to be a hamburger, where's the beef? If it's supposed to satisfy our hunger, where's the beef? Uh, and it was, I don't know how many years it ran, but it was a long-running, very popular commercial. In fact, I think it ran to that little lady that did it actually passed away as the reason the commercial ended. I was thinking about that commercial this week with a message that I'm preaching this morning. Because I think a similar question could be asked of us as, as professing Christians. And the question is, where's the fruit? The Bible speaks of fruit being born in the life of those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. Jesus said that if we abided in Him, we would bear much fruit. And that this would, it was for the Father's glory, and it would declare that we were indeed His disciples. Now, fruit isn't what Jesus meant. It was just evidence of spiritual life. Fruit, as the Bible intends for it to be, is is something that is different about our lives because we know Jesus. Because we have repented, because we have believed, because we have been born again, these things are different about our lives. Now what's significant about that is that it's intended to be things that are only there because of Jesus. Right? It's not that these things are there because now we're older. Uh, there are things that I did in my twenties that I would not do in my forties, right? Age and infirmity and frailty have made it so that I'm not able to do some of the things that I did in my twenties, right? That's not Jesus. It's not that Jesus changed me and I stopped jumping off cliffs into the river. It's that I'm afraid of breaking something that won't ever heal again, but right? I, I act differently in a lot of ways now. Than I did in my 20's. Now some of it is Jesus. But some of it is because in my 20's. I was a single guy. I was in the army. And I had no responsibilities outside of myself. But now. I'm a husband. I'm a father of two teenage girls. And I have a a special needs daughter. I mean those things change how you act. And some of the priorities of your life. But that doesn't mean Jesus has changed me. So the fruit that we're looking for, it's not because we're a little older and wiser now. It's not because maybe we break easier than we used to. It's not because our jobs have changed or our circumstances of life are different. It is just something that's there or not there simply because I've been born again. So when we say, where's the fruit? What we're asking is, where's the evidence? Where is the evidence of being born again? Where is the evidence that we know Jesus? Where is the evidence that we have received eternal life? That would be easy enough for us to say, well, you know, I, I have believed. And do you really think Jesus cares if I live a fruitful life so long as I'm moral? Right? I mean, I'm not talking, go out and live wicked, immorality preacher. I'm just saying, as long as I live a basically moral life, does Jesus really care? If there's fruit. Does the fruit really matter? Well, I want to answer that this morning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, page 751 in your pew Bibles. And that's on uh, Matthew 22, verse 18, 751 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Just two verses. Matthew 21, I'm sorry, 21, not 22. That happens a lot. 21 verses 18 and 19. It says, now in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree on the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately, the fig tree withered away. The of the message this morning is, Where's the Fruit? Let's pray. Our Father, we love You today. We thank You for Your grace and goodness. Thank You for the opportunity we have to gather, study Your Word in this time. Lord, to hear from You. God, as we have gathered in this time, we are looking at Your Word, and that is You, Father. It is You speaking to us from Your Word. It is Your Spirit moving to make Your Word living and active into our lives. And we surrender to You this morning. For your Holy Spirit to search us, to try us, to see if there's any wicked way in our lives, God. Anything in our lives that is not pleasing to you. So that you can point it out and lead us, Lord, in a way of righteousness, in a way of peace, in the way of holiness, in the way, Lord, of Jesus. God, today as we look at the idea of fruit being in our lives, let your Spirit examine us and make it clear. The kind of fruit that should be there and the problem. Mm That there is when there is no fruit there. Father today. We need you. We need you to help us lay aside. Any cares of life that we have brought in. We need you to help us take your word. As seriously as we ought to. We need you. To convict us where we need convicting. We need you to strengthen us. Where we need strengthening. We need you to encourage us. Where we need encouraging. We need you. Father, open our hearts and open our minds to receive what you have for us today. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and guide me. Father, my desire is not for my own eloquence. It's not for anyone to think anything of me. But God, it is just to reveal your word, to preach what you've laid upon my heart. So let it be your word that we hear and not mine. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and let me speak, Lord, in ways that would honor you, with an attitude that's pleasing to you, and help me to be sure I'm living what I'm preaching in my own life. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this story is interesting and confusing, especially if you harmonize the accounts of Matthew and Mark, which are the two places it's found. Mark gives us a few details that Matthew omits. For instance, um, Mark tells us that Jesus saw the leaves on the tree from far away. I think you can infer that from this, but it specifically says it. Mark also tells us that there were no figs because it was too early in the season for figs. And then Matthew tells us there was nothing on this tree but leaves no fruit just leaves I saw some questions we would have looking at this story is if it was too early in the season for figs Why would jesus go there and look for figs? And if it was too early in the season for figs, why was jesus upset? There were no figs so upset that in fact he would curse the tree till it died Now to understand the story we kind of have to consider the context Jesus, at this point, has made His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The people have gathered. They have thrown the palm trees down, the palm branches down. They have said, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And at this point, He is going to the temple. He is going to argue with the religious leaders. He is going to cleanse the temple of the money changers and the merchants, which will cause massive conflict. With those who are profiting from that. Now, As we think about Jesus' ministry. Think for a second about who bore the brunt. Of Jesus' wrath. When he ministered on the earth. Because it's interesting. It's not necessarily who you would expect. Because we might expect that it would be tax collectors. And sinners. And yet it wasn't. Very often we actually find Jesus Eating. With tax collectors and sinners. And the Bible even says they were glad to go to Jesus and hear Him. The ones that bore His wrath, it was the religious leaders of the day. Right? The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those that the the normal people looked at and they said, these are the pillars of our community. This is what everyone aspires to be as a religious Jew. Now, the religious leaders, they they didn't live outwardly wicked, immoral lives. They, They weren't adulterers. They weren't fornicators. They weren't embezzlers. They didn't cheat on their tithe. They didn't skip the fasting days. Outwardly, they did all of the things that needed to be done. Outwardly, they appeared to be the most righteous, the most pious people in all of Israel. And yet, they were harsh. They were mean. They were hateful. Their lives did not produce any sort of spiritual fruit that would testify of the fact that they actually knew the God of the Bible. Outwardly, they appeared to men to be righteous. But inwardly, Jesus said they were filled with dead men's bones. Now, the trees. Fig tree. Some facts about fig tree that are critical to our understanding. There are some trees that are called early trees, which means kind of what it sounds like. They produce figs before the normal fig producing time. A second fact about fig trees is that the leaves were were produced before the fruit. So any time that you saw a fig tree with leaves, it was safe to assume that it was a fig tree with figs. Because that was the way that it worked. But this one, this one didn't. It had leaves testifying that it was a fig tree, but it didn't have the fruit that gave the evidence it was a fig tree. It was nothing but leaves. So here's how all of this ties together for our message. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducee of Jesus' day, they had all of the outward acts of religion. The leaves, if you will. But there was no fruit from this supposed righteousness that came from God. In other words, their religion... It was nothing but appearance. There was no substance to it. It was only an appearance of righteousness without the reality of a relationship with God. The truth for us is that Jesus wants us to live fruitful lives. God expected something from them because they knew Him. God expected something from them that was more than outward appearance, but an inward transformation in their lives because of their connection to the awesome God of the Bible. And that's what Jesus expects and wants for us today. You see, we may have all of the outward appearances of religion. We may come to church we may keep our tithe. We may carry our Bibles. We may listen to Christian music. We may wear Christian shirts. We may talk about how much we love Jesus. And the list could go on and on of all of the appearances of religion and righteousness. But if all of this is nothing but appearance, it's just leaves, then it has no eternal Value. It is essentially worthless. So the key truth for us today is that the appearance of religion without the fruit of salvation is worthless. The appearance of religion without the fruit of salvation is worthless. Now, the natural question we'll have is what? Kind of fruit. What kind of fruit should be in our lives that would testify of the fact we know Jesus? Far more than we could cover this morning, but Scripture gives us three that I think are significant. First is the fruit of the Spirit. When we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And part of what the Holy Spirit does is He begins to change us. From the inside out. Now the change that the Holy Spirit brings, it isn't the outward appearance of religion. It is an inward transformation or fruit that testifies of salvation and life. Connection to Jesus that is eventually seen in the way that we live. So what is the fruit of the Spirit? Well, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All right, so let me kind of quickly go over what each of these mean. Like the word love is the word agape. And it's a word that's always used speaking of God's love for us. And that's significant because kind of the point is that this God-like love is not natural to man. But like the only time, really, that we find agape love referencing the kind of love we have, it is not for unbelievers, don't agape people. For those that know Jesus, now they are able to agape people, right? It is a, a love that is born in our lives because of the work of God in our lives. It is, in fact, when Jesus said, by this, all men will know you're my disciples. It is this agape love. It is a, a testimony of fruit that we've been born again. Joy. Now, joy is an inward rejoicing that remains with us despite the circumstances of life. Right? Joy in the Bible is not that all is right with my world. that all is right with my Jesus. And because of my connection to Jesus, despite my circumstances, I can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The same with peace. The peace that the Holy Spirit produces in our life, it's not a peace where my life is perfect. It's not a peace where everything is as it should be. It's a peace that even though things aren't as they should be, I am at peace because the Bible says, Jesus, He gives it to me. Long-suffering. It's the opposite of being short-tempered. This is, and this is hard, putting up with people who irritate us without blowing up. Is anybody else convicted by that but me? Long-suffering bears with certain annoyances or inconveniences without complaint. Does not lose its temper when provoked. Kindness, biblical kindness, is not just being nice to people. It is also taking the initiative... To meet the needs of those around us. Kindness, what I always, when I did chapel at NCS, what I always told the kids kindness isn't not picking on the kid everybody else is picking on. That's not kindness. Kindness is befriending the kid that everyone else is picking on. Kindness isn't waiting till someone asks us for help, but kindness is seeing a need and doing what we can to meet that need. Goodness. Goodness is, in a lot of ways, moral goodness, but it it particularly involves how we deal with others. Goodness will prevent us from repaying evil for evil. Goodness that the Holy Spirit produces... Enables us to overcome evil with good. As Paul says in Romans. Faithfulness. Means trustworthiness. It means doing what you say you're going to do. That you will. Your yes is yes and your no is no. Gentleness. Means to be meek. To be tender. To be humble and considerate. Gentleness cares for the feelings of others. And feels with them. That it cares for the feelings of others is probably seen in two ways. On the one hand, caring for the feelings of others is caring about how, how they're going to feel about maybe what I'm going to say. Is what I'm going to say, whether true or not, is it going to hurt their feelings? Is it something that when I do this, they're going to be personally offended by it, and I know that. Gentle person will take into consideration and won't intentionally seek to offend or hurt the feelings of another. Also, that it feels with them. Gentle person can rejoice when those who rejoice and they can mourn with those who mourn. And then self-control Self-control is basically doing what we know is right, despite the desire to do otherwise. When I want to do what is wrong, self-control enables me to do what is right. Now, The Holy Spirit lives inside every person that has been born again. Every person that is genuinely saved has the Spirit of the living God living in them. And He is constantly working in their lives to produce These things within us. But he's not working to produce them occasionally. Right? When the Spirit seeks to do. Is to produce these things consistently. That consistently. Our lives will be filled with love. Joy. Peace. Long suffering. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. And self-control. A constant spring of these things. Flowing out in our lives. But. Here's the. The key, the Holy Spirit, the the part that fruit that testifies that it's a new birth experience, that we're doing this because of Jesus, is when it's produced in the moments and when we're tempted to do the opposite. Right, because anyone, any person can show a measure of love, especially to those who love them. Any person can have a measure of joy when everything is right in their world. Anyone can have peace when there are no stressful circumstances of life. Anyone can be long-suffering to those who do not get on their nerves. Anyone can be kind to those they want to be kind to. Anyone can can show goodness in areas where they want to be good. Anyone can be faithful to the things that they want to do. Anyone can show self-control in the areas that they want to show self-control. The testimony of new birth, the testimony of life and the Spirit living within us, is when we show them in the opposite moments. The love that testifies of a being born again is when we love the unlovable. When we love those who do not love us. When we love those who are maybe mean to us even. Isn't that what Jesus said to do? To do good to the, those that hate us and despitefully use us to love your enemies? That's not a natural thing. We can't naturally love our enemies. That is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit within us. The joy that is most clearly an evidence of the Holy Spirit is when circumstances conspire to steal our joy. Plans fall through. (coughs) Things go bad. Do we have joy in those moments. Not that it's not hard. Like Paul even says, as all, as sorrowing, yet always rejoicing. So it's not that we're crazy. Right? It's not that we're denying the harshness of the situation. It's that even in that harshness, where there is sorrow, there is still joy in our lives. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Peace. That passes all understanding. Isn't supernatural. Until we're in the midst of a storm. Until the test results. Come back badly. Until the office says. We no longer are employed. Until our children go off the rails. In rebellion. Until any number of bad things. Happen in our lives. And yet even in that moment. Where we feel out of control. We have peace. Because our God is in control. That's. The peace that testifies of being born again. It's only the long suffering that comes from the Spirit when we are tempted to act out in anger. Someone gets on our last nerve. We've been good as long as we can. And in that moment when what we want to do is lash out and tell them how it is, Those who have been born again can be patient just a little bit longer because of the work of the Spirit in their lives. Kindness, supernatural kindness, it's the kind that's seen maybe when we want to be unkind. You know, maybe I wrote this because I feel at times the temptation to be unkind. And as ashamed as I am of that reality, it's there. And on my own, I would almost always be unkind. So the temptation to be unkind, to say that biting remark, to say that one thing that really puts them in their place—it's the spirit that says, "No, be kind." Or the the helping in need. Do you ever see someone, know the need that they have, and then come up with this thought? It's their own fault. They've made their own decisions that got them in that place. And we withhold kindness. Anyone can do that. Anyone can help those in need that we believe deserve that help. But only the Holy Spirit produces a kindness within us that makes us help those we feel do not deserve our help there's no challenge to be good until our sinful nature tempts us to do something different to be mean, to be harsh to do the things that we should not do toward people to repay evil for evil Um. Getting even is very much something that many of us do. And yet this goodness of the Holy Spirit will prevent us from doing that. There are always going to be things that we say we'll do. And in the end we don't really want to do it. Those who are Spirit-filled and Spirit-led because they've been born again they'll do it anyway because the holy spirit within them makes it so that they do gentleness it's only supernatural when we want to be harsh when we want in that moment to just hurt their feelings as badly as we can to put them in their place and it's only Really, Holy Spirit powered self control when we're resisting an urge to do something else. Anyone can show a measure of these virtues under the right circumstances. But only the Spirit filled, born again, child of God can show all of these virtues. Regardless of the circumstances in their lives. And the spirit filled, born again child of God is meant to show all of these virtues in their lives at all times in their lives. Where's the fruit? Where's the love? Where's the joy? Where's the peace? Where's the long suffering? Where's the kindness? Where's the faithfulness? Where's the goodness? Where's the gentleness? And where's the self-control? Is this fruit visible in your life? A second testimony fruit is a desire for Scripture. When Jesus saves one, someone, He always changes them. Always When the Holy Spirit indwells someone, He always changes them. Always. And one of the areas that this change is seen is in our desires. And one of the desires that comes from being born again, being Spirit-filled, is a desire for Scripture. Peter said, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted, the Lord is gracious. So, what Peter's saying is that those who have tasted the graciousness and the goodness of God, they have a new desire. And that desire is for the Word. It's for Scripture. And that's an interesting, the the sentence that Peter uses there is very interesting. Because the word desire that he uses, it has an intense, it it means to have an intense longing for something. And it not only implies desire, But it pictures a willingness to do whatever needs to be done to acquire this desire. And the Greek word also implies that this desire is objective. So when you put this together, what Peter is saying is that those who have tasted the goodness and the graciousness of God, they have an intense longing for something. And this longing that they have for it It is active. It makes them do whatever is necessary to satisfy this longing. But this longing can only be satisfied by one thing. Right? It is objective and limited to the very object of the desire. And in this case, that desire is for scripture. The picture is that those who are born again, they have a continual, strong desire they can only be satisfied by the Word of God. Nothing else will quench this thirst or satisfy this hunger. Now, an interesting thing about this. When we read something like this in our day, we typically think, well, that means to study the Bible. right? Because in our day, we all have Bibles. I have a Bible here. I have an Two, two Bible apps on my computer, on my little computer here. I have multiple Bibles in my office, as do all of you. So we say, well, that desire, that is to, to be in the Word, to study the Word. And to be sure, that's a part of it. But let's remember what the world was like when Peter first wrote that. How many people had personal copies of the Bible in Peter's day? It would be like no one. So how was it that they could satisfy that desire? It was to gather with the church. Where the word was going to be taught. That's why, like in Acts, it talks about them gathering together day by day. They had a a hunger, a longing for the word. And that was the only way that they could satisfy it, was to gather together. One of my favorite stories... That illustrates this kind of a hunger. It was something I, a guy I heard tell the story several years ago, and it was just after the Reformation, when the Bible had just started to be given to the people, put in their own language, so they could understand it. Before this, the, the Roman Catholic Church had largely kept it in Latin, so the common people couldn't understand it, much read it, much less understand it. One of the reform, and many of the reformers, one of the parts of the Reformation was that. Everybody deserved a copy of the Bible in their own language. Be able to read it in their native tongue. So once that began to happen, it still wasn't common to have personal copies of Scripture. And so there might be one for a church that was prized and extremely valuable. And on the pulpits from that day, you can see, if you see some, there would be a place for an hourglass on there. And when the preacher got up to preach, he would flip the hourglass and it would run. But the point wasn't to make sure he stopped at an hour. The point was to make sure they got the full hour out of it. They didn't want him to get up there and cut them short. They wanted to be sure that they got the full hour. Because they were hungry for the word. They had lived their whole lives without ever getting to hear it in their own language. And the guy that told the story said it was not uncommon at the end of the hour... For the people to cry out. Give us another turn. And want him to turn it over. And to give them another hour. Of the word on that day. They had a hunger. For the word. That could not be satisfied. With anything other than the word. The desire that we are to have. That we will have. It is not merely a hunger to study it. Though again I don't want to misunderstand. I don't want to underestimate that. It is certainly a part of what's meant. And there should be that desire to study the Word on our own. There's also a desire to be where the Word is proclaimed. To be taught. To be instructed from the Word. That is why preaching has always been a part of worship. Worship is essentially declaring God's worth. And one of the ways that we declare that our God is awesome and worthy is when we set aside time to gather with other people who have been saved by Him and say, on this day, I'm going to devote myself to hearing the Word of God. Then I'm going to study that out to see if it was true. And then I'm going to live it out. We declare God's worth every time. We make church a priority in our lives. Every time we gather and say, I want to hear what God's word says, we are declaring that our God is great and awesome and he is worthy of our worship and devotion. One of the main reasons that we desire scripture is because it is through scripture that we first encountered God. It is scripture that revealed to us our need for Jesus. It is Scripture that revealed to us the salvation that was available to Him. It was through Scripture and our responding to Scripture, calling on Jesus, that we first tasted the goodness and the graciousness of God. And that initial taste has made us long for it all the more. We want more of God and more of His goodness, right? Because... The desire isn't so that we can know the Bible better, so that we can argue with others. It is so that we can know God better. We can love Him more. We can worship Him better. We can live for Him more fully. Anytime people ask, How how can I know Jesus? How can I know Jesus better? Here. Nice. Go read a gospel. Go read the Bible. You want to know God? Get in the book that he wrote. Listen, I'm not against other books, other kinds of books. I read lots of other kinds of books. But this is the book. This is where we go to know God, to experience God, to to experience more of His goodness, His grace, His fullness in our life. Scripture is the story of God. So our, our knowledge of God leads us to a desire of Scripture that we can more fully know God and experience more of His goodness. We will never know God apart from Scripture. We we will never experience the fullness and the goodness of God apart from Scripture. And Jesus, when He saves us, the Holy Spirit lives within us. The Holy Spirit produces that desire within us. That is a And that is an unnatural thing. What we're doing today, it is an unnatural thing. I mean, outside of school, where do people get up early, sit in benches, sing songs, listen to somebody talk? The desire to be here, to be a part of what we're doing, it is an, an unnatural And what I mean is it's not something that just wells up within us on our own. It is something that comes from the Holy Spirit. So where's, where's the fruit? Do you have that kind of longing, that kind of desire to study the Word on your own? To be where the Word is proclaimed? To declare God's worth in this time? Is this fruit visible in your life? And then finally, a life of obedience. Fruit of the Spirit, desire for God's Word, and then a life of obedience. We talk about the changes being made after we've been saved by Jesus. The change we most often focus on is the change regarding our eternal destiny. Going to heaven and not hell. Those who are saved by Jesus are guaranteed that heaven is their home for there is no more condemnation for them in Jesus Christ. That is a precious, wonderful promise. However, we have to remember that the changes Jesus makes in our life, it's not just an eternal change. It's a very practical thing. It's not just a change in where we'll be then, but it's also a change in in who we are and how we live now. For those that have been born again. A life of obedience to Christ is not seen as an option. It's just what makes the most sense. I like how John says it. Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Now, I like that. How do we know that we know Jesus? We do what He says. I mean, meeting Jesus, that's a life-altering event. I've met lots of people. When I was in the Army stationed in Berlin, we had a a football game, a pro football game, uh, that took place in the Berlin Stadium. And I I got tasked on detail, and I got to meet basically all of the players on both teams. Right, Um, and they made such an impact on me. I can't remember any of their names. Right, what the John McEnroe? No, that's that's a tennis player. What was the guy for the Chicago Bears when they won the the Super Bowl? Him. I met that guy, Jim Jim McMahon. I met Jim McMahon. You can see how much of an impact it had on my life. Couldn't remember his name. Right, I met other famous people that would come through the years that would want to see soldiers when they came through Berlin and through military bases. None of them, none of them really left a lasting impact on my life. And it would make sense that it wouldn't. I mean, they're just people. But Jesus isn't just a people. He God. He is God in the flesh. Meeting Him is a life-altering event. No one who meets Jesus is ever the same. And so how do we know that we have met Jesus We keep His commandments. Now, John is plain. Uh, That's one reason I love the, the book of 1 John. John is ruthlessly plain. right? Because not only does he say, Hey, you want to know how you know if you've met Jesus? You keep His commandments. And if you've met Him, that's proof that you keep His commandments. But he also says the opposite is true. If you don't keep His commandments, that testifies to something as well. That you're a liar and the truth is not in you. I mean, that's harsh, right? I mean, that's that's one of those things that is so plain that we want to 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 soften it up. We want to say something that's a little bit less than what John says. But if we're faithful to Scripture, we can't do that. If we're faithful to Scripture, what we have to do is take that at face value and say, those who live a life of obedience to Christ, they know Jesus. But those who live lives of rebellion and disobedience to Jesus... That is not just an empty thing. That is a testimony. They do not know God. But John, John is not seeking outward conformity. He's not saying, okay, keep the commandments, obey Jesus, and he'll save you. John is actually pointing to an inner reality, right? A, something that happens. Not, we don't do it to be accepted, but we do it because we are accepted. Right? So the obedience isn't, well, gosh, I don't live a life of obedience, so I better start doing these things. I better knuckle it under and get it done. It's not what John's saying. Right? John will go on and he'll clarify. And he says, by this we know the love, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. So, I know I love God when I keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Oh my goodness. That's just not something you can make up, is it? I mean, anyone can knuckle under some sort of obedience to Jesus. We can knuckle under an outward appearance, taking up our cross and turning the other cheek. But what we can't do is make those things not be a burden to our lives. What we can't do is change how our heart feels about this obedience to Jesus. So how could we ever live a life of obedience to Christ without it being a burden? It happens when we're born again. It happens when we know Him. And we love Him. The greatest testimony... That we know God, that we love God. It's not in the testimonies we can write out. Man, it is in the testimony that we live out day in and day out. That we do His will, and His will is not a burden. The kind of obedience that testifies of new birth, it's not the knuckle it under and do it so I don't go to hell obedience. That's legalism. The kind of obedience that testifies of new birth its a loving obedience. I love you, Lord. So I will do your will. The kind of obedience that testifies of a new birth is a joyful obedience. Your way is best and it draws me closer to You and that is the best thing ever. So I'll do it. The kind of obedience that testifies of a new birth is a grateful obedience. Mercy, Jesus, after what You did for me, how on earth could I ever not just do everything You want me to do? Thank You. I will run to keep Your commandments. So we should not only ask ourselves, do I obey Jesus? But also, why? Why do I obey Jesus? Because the why matters. Do I obey Jesus so that He'll bless me? Or do I obey Jesus because He has blessed me? Do I obey Jesus... So that he'll accept me? Or do I obey Jesus because he has accepted me? Do I obey Jesus so that he'll save me? Or do I obey Jesus because he has saved me? Do I obey Jesus so that he'll love me? Or do I obey Jesus because he's already loved me? The why matters. But you also need to ask what is my attitude about that obedience? Burden or blessing. Uh, now this isn't to say difficulty won't be an issue, but some things are going to be hard. Some of the hard will be due to our personality. Some people are naturally more generous than others and so generosity won't be difficult. Other people are less generous naturally and so generosity would be a difficulty. Some people are more selfish necessarily or naturally and so selflessness will be difficult where some people are naturally selfless and so that would be an easier thing so we're not talking about how difficult it is but just our general attitude about it we're running out of time but when I think about attitude the one thing I remember is when a switch flipped for me in the army when I first enlisted my life revolved around being a soldier Six o'clock in the evening, I went to my room. From six to seven, I read my army infantry soldiers manual. From eight, after from seven, uh, six to seven, I read the manual from seven to eight. I ironed my uniforms and spit shined my boots. I went to bed by nine every day so I could get up and be downstairs for PT and be ready to go. And then there was a day and I was digging a hole and it was cold and it was rainy. And my socks were soft and wet. And I saw my platoon sergeant who had been in the army for 18 years digging a hole in the same conditions I was. And in that moment, a switch flipped and I thought, there's something else I can do with my life but this. And from that moment on, everything I did to soldier was an enormous burden. I hated reading that book. Spit shine in those boots over and over again. What a waste of time. Starched uniform, that's not actually the standard, so I don't have to do it. Everything we did, it was a burden. And all that happened, I didn't love being a soldier anymore. Now, I did I did all the stuff I was supposed to. I met all my standards. I did everything I was supposed to do. But I dropped and complained. About every bit of it. Now, not out loud, because that would have been bad. But in my head and in my heart, it was filled with griping and complaining. So how's your obedience to Jesus? Joyful, grateful, loving, filled with griping, complaining. Listen, those things matter. It matters enormously. Now there's a lot more things, fruit, the Bible says, will be there when we've been born again. But what we've covered today shows two truths about the kind of transformation Jesus makes when He saves us. First, it's character and actions. The Holy Spirit produces that character transformation, who I am. Now that character transformation affects my actions, but it's primarily my character, who I am at the core of my being. Desire for Scripture is a transformation of actions and a transformation of desires. I, I want something I didn't want before and I'm going to do something I didn't do before. And then a transformation of obedience is a transformation of actions. But it's not just a knuckle under actions. It is a, actions that flow from a transformed character. So character... And actions are both a part of the change that Jesus makes in us. A second truth that we see is that these, this transformation is visible. I mean, just think about the fruit of the Spirit. Do people that bear the fruit of the Spirit, are they different? Are they noticeably different than people who don't have it? A, a-, a desire for Scripture is, is noticeable. In a person who has it, in the way that they seek to satisfy that desire. And a person who lives a life of obedience is noticeably different than a person who lives a life of disobedience. So it's noticeable. Now one last truth, and we are going to have to hurry, is I want you to see what Jesus does to the tree. Curses it and it dies. He doesn't just say your leaves are fine. I'm glad they're pretty leaves. Looks good. Yeah, the fruit's fine today. The leaves are fine today. Maybe there'll be fruit later on. He, he, He curses it and it dies. That's a sign of judgment. For our purposes. We should see a lack of fruit being caused by a lack of salvation. Where there is no fruit, there is no life. Let me quickly show you this in another passage. Turn back to Mark 3. Take time to read all 12 verses, but we don't have time for that today. No, I'm sorry, Matthew 3. Matthew 3. Matthew three verses one through twelve what you should read, but just for today we're going to look at verse start in verse seven. John the Baptist is preaching, preaching repentance to prepare the way for Jesus. But he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to be baptized, and he says, Brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bear fruit worthy of repentance. Right. So John baptized people who repented of their sins. They they repented. They heard him preach and they said, oh, I've sinned. I'm not living in the covenant with God that I am meant to. God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I turned from that. I'm going to live for you. Then they went into the water so that John could baptize them. The scribes and the Pharisees, they came and they said, hey, we're going to go and be baptized, too. But as they tried to get in the water, John, rather than just accepting them in the water, he says, brood of vipers, which is not a good thing. Right? bear fruit, in other words, before you get down in this water, there needs to be something in your life that testifies that you have been born again, that you have repented of your sins. Right? Bear fruit worthy. And he says, don't just trust in your heritage. Right? Don't just trust the fact that you're a Jew. That's no big deal. But bear fruit. And notice verse 10, what happens if you don't bear fruit? The axe is laid at the root of the trees... Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Hell. And there is no way tossed into the fire is a euphemism for salvation. It's not salvation without rewards in heaven. cast in the fire that is unequivocally a testimony of God's judgment calling, falling on them if they do not bear fruit testifying of their genuine repentance the tree that does not bear fruit will be cast to the fire that's a certainty So looking at your life, where's the fruit? Where is the evidence that you have been born again? The Apostle Paul called a church to question one time on their salvation. And when he questioned them, he told them to look at their lives Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is among you unless you're disqualified? And notice what he didn't say. Did you come to an altar? Have you prayed a prayer? Have you been baptized? Do you attend church? Were you raised in church? Are your parents Christians? He didn't ask any of those questions. Instead, he said, look at your life. And you tell me the ways that you see that Jesus has changed you. Look at your life and see, does it prove that Christ is in you and with you? Where's the fruit? And if there's no proof, he says, don't you realize that means you're disqualified. Again, that doesn't mean go to heaven without rewards. He's saying, if you can't see Jesus in your life, surely you've got to realize that means you're not really saved. This is a point we cannot rush past. Fruit is not the optional add-on of salvation. It is the the revelation of salvation. It proves that we have been born again. So where's the fruit in your life today? What actions do you take just because of your faith in Christ? Not actions you take because you're older. Not actions you take because you've gotten married. Not actions you take because you've emotionally matured. Not actions you take because of any external circumstances, but just because of your faith in Christ. What's different in your character because of your faith in Christ? Again, not because you're older, not because you've emotionally matured, not because you've gotten married, not because your external circumstances have changed in some way, But a change in your character just because of your faith in Jesus. If there is no change, if there is no fruit, you must be born again. The point of this message isn't try harder to bear more fruit. The point of the message is where there is no fruit, there is no life, you must be born again. Dear friend, do not take lightly a lack of fruit in your life. Do not take a lack of fruit as something that is a minor difference. It is an enormous defect. That testifies that there is no life. Right now, in this moment, if there is no fruit, you are coming up with reasons as to why it's still okay for you. Dear friend, that is not God, that is not the Word, that is not Jesus, that is not the Spirit. That is your sinful nature keeping you lost in your sins. And separated from Jesus Christ. If there is no fruit in your life. You let that drive you to Christ today. And in this time where we have a response. You cry out to Him. To save you. You cry out to Him. To change you. To fill you with His Spirit. So that fruit naturally flows. Out of your life. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes.